welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. You know, the anatomy and the mechanics of our faces are so fascinating. Multiple small muscles work in conjunction with each other, controlled by nerves, or electric cables, if you will, to produce movement, and the outcome is so impactful upon our daily existence. Think of everything your face does for you. Now, imagine if you went to smile but couldn't move half of your face. Whether caused by a medical problem or a traumatic injury, facial nerve impairment can be devastating. No need to lose hope, however, because there are some wonderful things that can be done now to help this problem. In this episode, we have Dr. Babak Azizadeh with us, who has great experience in this area and shares his knowledge. Let's listen in now. Well, today I'm pleased to introduce to you Dr. Babak Azizadeh, who is a facial plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. Welcome, Dr. Azizadeh. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. Let's start by having you tell us the current scope or nature of your practice. What types of cases do you do typically? So I have an interesting boutique practice in Southern California where I've been able to develop kind of an interesting niche in facial plastics in two major areas. One is aging face surgery. So I have very nice practice focus on doing comprehensive facelifts and eyelid surgery and other procedures to address aging face. And my other passion is taking care of kids and adults who have paralyzed faces. Mm. So I do, uh, you know, especially uh, pro bono work in South America. Also in the U.S. I have a practice that has elements of facial reanimation. So it's kind of cool. They're very interrelated and they've been very complementary to one another and so much fun to do. Absolutely. What a beautiful blend of practices. I think that's great. And and how rewarding that must be. And gosh, you've become such a well-known entity, if you will, throughout the country with many media appearances. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm just curious if you could tell us uh, one or two that have been personal high points for you. So the biggest media appearance that I had was actually on the Oprah Winfrey show, which was pretty crazy and spectacular. The entire show was on a patient and myself that I operated on, and they came for weeks in advance, video surgery of the patient, 
flew us out to Chicago. Wow. It was pretty spectacular. At that time, they wouldn't let you take your phones into the studio. Oh. So, you know, it was it was a really, really tight coverage. Yeah. But it was wonderful. I mean, that was, I would say, the highlight. I mean, uh, Oprah is just an amazing human being. And when you meet her in person, you realize why she is probably one of the most successful journalists and uh, entertainment individuals that we've come across. How lovely. So that was, I would say, the biggest highlight. Yeah. But obviously, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been on, you know, almost every, you know, New York Times and LA Times and uh, Doctor's Show, Dr. Oz, People Magazine. So I've been fortunate enough to have my share of interactions with the, uh, with the press. That's pretty cool. Well, you know, we're here to talk about this interesting subject of restoration of facial movement. Um, But would you start by explaining to the listeners what the facial nerves are and what they do? So we have multiple muscles on either side of our face. These are not the typical muscles you think of, like your biceps and triceps. These are very, very teeny, thin, fragile muscles that basically allow us to express ourselves. And even though obviously smiling and happiness is the most common facial expression we think about and very important in our social interactions, mm-hmm. but you know, showing our unhappiness, sadness, anger, uh, and so forth, these are all facial expressions that are controlled by these muscles and they move our face in different directions. The brain controls these muscles And these muscles move very minutely, very coordinated, very smoothly. And it's unintentional movements and very subconscious and and has a lot of finesse. So the way that the brain controls these is by basically connecting to these muscles through a nerve called the facial nerve. And facial nerve is kind of like wires, right? We have thousands of wires that connect the brain to these muscles. And those wires start out kind of traveling together as they leave the brain uh, and travel through a bone behind the ear. And then they come into the face and start dividing like highways and go into these various muscles and direct their actions. And so that's kind of how our facial movement is controlled by our brain. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thank you. And so how problematic might it be if part of the face did not function or couldn't move? Very problematic because our ability to communicate with others is critical. And any level of asymmetry between the two sides of the face really impacts that. And I always compare it with a very, not trivial, but something that everyone has dealt with, acne. Right. You know, sure. uh, you know, I have teenage kids and if they wake up in the morning and they have an acne flare out, they don't want to go to school. Yeah. They're like, you know, they're embarrassed. They're, you know, mm-hmm. they may get teased and so forth. So if you have any facial movement issues, it really compromises your social communication. Mm-hmm. And we've actually studied this It's a big social hit yeah. and impacts that. So facial movement disorders, any sort of asymmetry in our ability to smile can have a profound psychosocial impact, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't cause any physiologic impact, which it does in many cases, it really is psychosocial impact is tremendous. Yeah, it's standing out in a way that you don't want to stand out. So how then could part of the face become paralyzed? What are some of the 
things that could cause that? Yeah, the most common cause, and this has become, you know, huge during the past few years is Bell's palsy. So Bell's palsy is caused by a reawakening of the herpes simplex virus, which causes the cold sore on our lips. That virus never goes away when we have that. And about half of the population has that virus. And that virus resides in that bone that we talked about earlier behind our ear. Mm -hmm. And if that virus gets reactivated, it causes inflammation and the nerve stops working. So that's the most common cause of facial paralysis. The second most common is Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which we recently had a very, very famous singer develop Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And that's caused by the chickenpox virus, the varicella zoster virus. The same thing that causes shingles can cause facial paralysis. So those are the two most common causes. Who was the singer, can you say? Justin Bieber. Oh. Yeah, Justin Bieber. And um, George Clooney had Bell's palsy. Oh so my gosh. two very, 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 very famous people developed these two um, common. But brain tumors can cause a benign or malignant cancer. Skin cancer can actually sometimes go and invades, spread into the nerves. Uh, parotid cancer, cancer of the salivary mm -hmm. glands, Lyme disease, uh, mono can actually cause Guillain-Barre and cause paralysis on both sides. And some children are born with congenital deformities and congenital issues such as Mobius syndrome that can have paralysis on both sides of the face. Yeah. So quite a few disease entities can be the source of this. And then what about uh, trauma to the facial nerves, injury, direct injury from some type of accident or violence? Yeah, I mean, skull fractures are a common cause of facial paralysis, lacerations to the face, and sometimes plastic surgery can also result. Oh, yes. uh, and, and most of the time it's temporary, but uh, sometimes it can be permanent, but that's very rare. Yeah, of course. So given those potential issues, what could be done to help people in these situations? Yeah. So when the nerve is injured, when the facial nerve is injured, there's three common pathways. Either the nerve completely regenerates and People go back to where they were, like George Clooney had a Bell's palsy and his smile and facial movement went exactly back to normal. Resolved. Okay. Yeah, resolved. Uh, the second pathway is no nerve recovery. And if there is no nerve recovery, the face becomes very floppy, droopy, the muscles aren't working, the muscles atrophy in due time, usually within a year or two after that. And we need to, in those cases, go and either revive the muscles if we can, or if not, introduce new muscles from other body parts to basically be helper muscles for smiling. And we can get that through, you know, muscles from the inner thigh or other areas. The third thing that can happen that's probably the most common is something we call synkinesis. And that's when the nerves regenerate but they miswire and regenerate irregularly. So when someone is trying to smile, instead of the small muscles working, the frowning muscles work. When they're trying to close That's their eyes, yeah, it's a big problem. So you lose coordination, you lose finesse, you create a lot of cramping in the face, 
So that's what we call synchinesis. So there are, these are the three most common, either complete recovery, no recovery, or kind of a recovery that's not correct. And just to clarify, this is for an intact nerve, not a nerve that's been cut or disrupted. This is when you've got a, a disease entity. Yeah. The third option is usually an intact yeah. nerve. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about how you do that muscle transfer. So you mentioned that you might harvest a muscle from the groin area or uh, something similar, and then what would occur? Yeah. So the most common muscle that we utilize, if our muscles, if, if a child's muscle or an adult's muscle is completely irreversibly atrophied, we can't bring it back, is the gracilis muscle. That's the most common. Uh, and that muscle is a very, very teeny muscle in our growing, in our inner thigh. And we usually like to transfer that with its nerve that's attached to it, artery and vein. So this is kind of what we call microvascular free tissue transfer. And we bring that muscle into and place it where the muscles have atrophy in the face, connect it to the corner of the mouth, support it, recreate the laugh line, and then connect the nerve of that muscle to a variety of different options. We could connect it to a nerve that we've transferred to the unaffected side. So the unaffected side can help this muscle move, give us an emotional, dynamic, active muscle movement that's like very natural. The patient doesn't have to think about it. We can also connect it to nerve sources that are related to our chewing muscle or other muscle types. But ideally, we like to utilize the nerve from the unaffected side to help this muscle move because the mm -hmm. two sides of our face move together at the same time. And right. we, we want to have a natural, spontaneous movement. That's really the critical way that we like to reanimate someone's face. Mm -hmm. And the gracilis muscle tends to be the best muscle. Now that muscle is charged with trying to move several parts of the face. So do you sometimes split that muscle and attach it in different positions, yeah. different places to get a more concerted or unified movement? Yeah, we like to actually split the muscle a lot of times in two or three different segments mm -hmm. that can help the lower eye that can help the lifting of the lip upward and the lifting of the corner of the mouth towards the ear as we naturally do. So those are kind of modern innovations that we try to do to get the most natural. But obviously, you're trying to replace 17 to 20 muscles with Just three, three segments. You know, yeah. segments. Yeah. yeah. So that's why ideally we want to revive facial musculature in people who have complete paralysis as soon as we can. So we don't have to actually bring in a new muscle. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, you bring the artery and the vein along so that you can reconnect those and create blood supply for that, uh, for that muscle. And what's the recovery like for that type of surgery? The physical recovery is actually pretty quick. A few weeks, people are back to their work or school, playing sports and so forth, usually within about three to four weeks. But the muscle, the way that it starts moving takes months and months and months mm -hmm. because nerves grow slowly. Then the muscle has to get kind of stronger 
then we have to do physiotherapy. So it's a process of months before we see activity and probably actually one to two years before we get to our final phase. Because in the beginning, the muscles will be a lot bigger and heavier and thicker than the other side of the face. So that needs to kind of calm down. And so it's a process. Once your nerve is damaged, I tell my patients, it is a complex problem to correct. And we have to just take our time and do it right and not rush into doing anything. And it's amazing that you kind of have to train that muscle and train the brain to use that muscle in a different way. And that must take time as well. Yeah, but if we do our job well, then we actually don't have to train the brain that much because we're connecting. It's kind of a rewiring. Yeah, recircuiting, yeah. (laughs) We're going to connect it to a nerve that already is connected to the brain and already when you laugh or smile is going to make that activity anyways. So we hope like, if we use the right nerves and the right activity to get the best possible results. Well, let's take a step back and and talk about a nerve that's been cut or transected, whether, you know, from, again, accident or violence or something like that. In that situation, is just sewing the nerve back together enough of a solution? If that is the case, how do you put the nerve back together? Yeah, the number one key is if you can sew the nerve back, sew it back. Yeah, That's like critical because by sewing the nerve back together, you're giving the opportunity of the correct side of the brain to mobilize the muscles. First of all, the muscles, you're giving them an opportunity not to get atrophied permanently Mm -hmm. and you're getting them back connected to the brain. But what does happen almost always is patients develop synkinesis Mm. because the nerves will regenerate irregularly because you won't be able to microscopically bring exactly the cut pieces back together. You're putting the generalized segments together. So we usually wait about a year and I actually pioneered a surgery called selective neurolysis about a decade ago for patients who have synkinesis from Bell's palsy or for scenario like this, where we go and actually identify all the nerve branches And selectively, if they're not doing their job correctly, we modify them, reduce their activity, reorient them, rewire them in an outpatient procedure. And that tends to get the patients to have the best possible smile and the best possible activity that's natural because the connection is in the same side of the brain as it's supposed to be. And they don't have to retrain their brain. They just have to probably do more of stretching and kind of releasing the cramping. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a wonderful service to provide a patient to be able to do that technique. Now, let's just say you were putting a nerve back together that had been cut and everything went well, but how long would you expect it to take for the muscle function to return? What do you tell patients? Yeah, so nerves generally grow about one millimeter per day. So if the area where the nerve was cut was, let's say, five centimeters from the muscles, the target muscles, 
we would expect about 50 days to 60 days for the nerves just to get to the muscles. Now, the muscles themselves may be three or four centimeters long. So that's another 30, 40 days. Sure. And then even when the entire muscle has nerve input, it doesn't automatically go back exactly where it was before the nerve was cut. And the perfect example is if anyone's had an orthopedic injury, they've had a cast. When you take your cast off, the muscles are like shriveled up. Sure. They're really thin. And it takes really months to kind of get those muscles back to their normal strength. So it takes months, mm -hmm. probably a year, to really get to a phase where things are where they're going to be at its final state. Yeah, that's good for people to know, uh, because I think there is an assumption that you sew something back together and boom, it's we're good. And it's not quite yeah, like that. That's TV show. That's yeah, Grey's right. Anatomy. Right. There you go. <laughs> love it. Well, uh, I would love to ask you if you can recall maybe an interesting patient story that might illustrate how important this service can be to your patients. The children probably stand out more than the adults do sure. because... The impact of having a paralyzed face, either a teenager or actually at elementary school oh, or yeah. preschool, it's just so tremendous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as adults, you're like, okay, I just want to be able to go back and have dinner with friends, right? When sure. my face is paralyzed. Yeah. I want to go to social functions and people not ask if I've had a stroke. As a child, it's like, God, am I going to be able to go to college? Yeah. Am I going to have a significant other? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be able to get into a sorority or a fraternity? So it's super impactful. So, I mean, I have a handful of kids that so exciting when they're like, oh yeah, I'm applying to college and I'm going to Harvard or uh, USC or, you know, UCSB, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that's probably the most impactful moment for me and i've had so many of those because i see my patients so often and uh it's gotta feel great it feels amazing and then for an adult i have this one patient her before and after is just so dramatic i mean she was just fully paralyzed from a brain tumor and she just went through so much and then one day she sent me a selfie of herself she was about to go on her first date in five years. Oh my gosh. And she sent me this glam shot of her about to go on a date. And she was so excited. And I looked at her picture. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so excited. And I realized that it was actually backwards. And I couldn't tell which side was the paralyzed side. You're kidding. So, yeah, it's no, incredible. It's really, really, really cool. So th those are like moments that are just really, really exciting. Yeah. That's when you know it's worth all the long, hard training and the long hours of cases. And yeah, you, you go home feeling really good. So fantastic. Uh, you know, I'm curious, what do you think or maybe hope the future might hold for treatment of these types of problems? Maybe some technology we don't have yet, or what would you like to see? So if we look at Bell's palsy and Ramsey Hunt syndrome, they probably make up. 98% of all cases of facial paralysis. Mm -hmm. So I would love a preventive way so that all their nerves regenerate normally. Yeah. So I think that will be in the horizon. We need a little bit more funding probably for research, a little bit better ideas, but that will solve a lot of problems <laughs> because Absolutely. it's just such a large number of people that get bells. Yeah. As far as the other aspects, I do think, you know, neurologic issues 
are very unique because once the nerve is damaged, there's an internal structure to those nerves. That's very hard. I don't foresee something that is going to be able to change the way those nerves are wired or the nerves are brought back together. Can we come up with stem cell therapy or some sort of therapy where when the nerves are put back together, whether it's in the face or brachial plexus injury or hand injuries or even like spinal cord injuries. Sure. Yeah, I could see that happening. I, I can see that maybe there will be some technology or some medicine or some sort of treatment that will help aid that repair. But it's going to be a while, I think, before yeah. we see that. It sure will be nice <laughs> when it, it happens. Yes. Oh, gosh. Well, you have just been so informative, and uh, we really appreciate that. I'd like to know if you have any final thoughts about our subject you'd like to leave the listeners with today. Uh, it's so nice, by the way, to be interviewed by uh, a plastic surgeon, because you know Yay. you know this, and you've done this, and Absolutely. You know, this has been a big part of your life, and I think you're very knowledgeable. I think, you know, for the most part, uh, people divide up plastic surgery into reconstructive and cosmetic surgery or aesthetic surgery. And I really think that line is really blurred, right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, whether we're doing a facelift for somebody, you know, changes their appearance and how it's impacting their lives, or we're doing facial reanimation, the impact at the end of the day is how do we impact their quality of life? Yeah. How do we make people you know, feel better, feel more comfortable, feel great. And a lot of the tools that we have in aesthetic surgery comes from our reconstructive experience and vice versa. That's a good point. A lot of the tools that we have or I employ in my reconstructive comes from my aesthetic experience. Sure. So it's kind of like important, I think, to understand that I don't think of anything we do in, as vanity surgery. I, I think about it as you know, we're trying to help improve people's, you know, just like, why do we exercise? Sometimes we do it for our internal health, right? Sometimes yeah. we do it, we want to feel great about ourselves. Yeah, our quality of life. Our quality of life, and we want to get, you know, feel great when we look at ourselves, right? Yeah. So it's the same thing. So it's, it's important for, I think, the audience uh, to understand that. And obviously, it's so great that you're a scholar in this, you know, so. Yeah, thank you. Gosh, well, I, I think that's a great place to leave it. Dr. Azizadeh, thank you so much for being with us today and really being so informative for our listeners. I know it'll be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And I really, really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing this show. Yes, and yes, Also yes. coming back. Yes, great. Take care. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.